0: Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Mount Air, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis 26, starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, "'Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we.' So Isaac departed from there, and encamped in the valley of Gerar, and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of a spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath his advisor and Phicol the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you, and have done nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, for there the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmath, the daughter of Elan the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. A whole chapter of Genesis. Nice work, everybody. That was really, you just, Matt, thank you. (laughs) We endured it. We got through it. Um, This morning, just as we're going through Genesis, we really are handling another big swath of text, obviously. And as far as the details of the story go, there, there's quite a lot going on, and, and we're seeing this as we handle larger and larger chunks of the text. I mean, we've got a lot of chapters to get through in Genesis. We don't necessarily want to be here for the next five years. And so you're, we're taking big chunks at a time. And so this is the biggest section, really, to handle as a whole regarding the life of Isaac. Um, there's this long wait, right, for the child of promise to show up with Abraham, starting in chapter 12. And there's this promised descendant coming, and we've been waiting for Isaac to show up. And then he finally does show up, and we have the binding of Isaac, right, in Genesis 22, where Isaac is laid on the altar, and Abraham is cold, told to sacrifice him, but is stopped by the Lord. And so they have this kind of interesting uh, narrative regarding Isaac there. But now this is basically it, because, and you'll see in chapter 27, we find uh, Isaac is an old man, he's blind, he can't really see, and he blesses his children. So this is all of Isaac's life, adult life, essentially in this one chapter probably happening after Abraham has died. So this is really all of the information we're getting about Isaac's adult life in this one chapter. So one thing I want to point out as we do a study like this or a sermon series like this, as we're looking at these big chunks, this is not because there's so little to say about these large chapters in Genesis. There's a lot to say about all of these chapters. Part of the difficulty is figuring out what few things do we really want to emphasize? So let me point out the obvious reality. There are many important details, many interesting truths contained in this book that we will not get pointed to in our time in Genesis. In our slowing, If we were to slow down and, and not slowing down to a snail's pace and not rehashing the text over and over and over again, we are relying upon something. Gemini, uh, and I, as we lead us through Genesis. We're relying on something. We hope that in our working through Genesis... We really hope that you're you're walking with Jesus, that as you continue walking with Jesus, you'll return to Genesis again and again and again, in the same way that you return to Scripture again and again and again. And this book, being divinely inspired by God, yields fruit every time we read it. We learn something new, We, we discover something new about God, so we don't pretend ...to get everything about Genesis solved for you this morning... ...as we preach through Genesis 26... ...but we're going to point out a few things as we walk through this book... ...and really it is our confidence, our hope that as a people... ...we are going to be people of this book. Like this is not our one time through Genesis, check that off... ...I never again have to visit Genesis again. That is not our hope, right? We, we want be people, this book is something that we are going to live in... ...for the rest of our lives as followers of Jesus... This is God's direct revelation to us. This is him speaking to us. It has ultimate authority over us. So every day of our lives really is lived underneath and and in this book. This is a book that we are to be lived in. So just quickly, Clint, I got got a resource. There are resources. If you just come in these doors and sit down here, there's a whole world of Missio you don't know about in in the foyer. There's there's coffee and donuts sometimes and cookies and a book table. And so just we've got a few copies of this book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is sermons that he did on the gospel in Genesis. There's a few copies of this out there. If you want to pick that up, these this, these resources are always free on our table. If you feel guilty about that and you want to give some money, you can do that if it makes you feel better, but they're absolutely free for you to take. There's another one out there by Nancy Guthrie called The Promised One, and she's working through the book of Genesis. There also are study Bibles. There's an ESV study Bible that if you want to be diligent in your study of the book of Genesis as we go through. Just pointing out a few resources for you out at our book table that you can, can dig into. But that, that's, that's a little side note. So as we look at these events in the life of Isaac, four things we're going to notice out of the text. The first is that we want to notice the, the big picture of what God is doing. He's really restating his promises to Abraham down to Isaac. And this, since chapter 12, chapter 15, right, we have this big Abrahamic covenant where the, the animals are laid out and God promises land and, and lineage. Right? He, he makes these promises that he's going to have offspring that's going to bless the nations. What we are seeing in this text is it faithfully passing on to the next generation. Abraham is dead. Right, He's gone. That's scary. What in the world is going to happen? This guy has been the hero that we thought we were going to live with forever. Who knows what? No, Abraham has died. What now happens to these promises? Well, God's promises are now given to Isaac. There's this continuation going on of, of the promises of God are faithful, and they're passed down to the next generation. We see it right there in the opening of chapter 26, right? God appears to Isaac and, and basically re- reiterates This whole promise that he's given to Abraham, he now promises it to Isaac. There are unavoidable similarities here. And maybe you picked up on a few of them. There are unavoidable similarities between the life of Isaac and the life of Abraham. You you look at right at the beginning, we see there's this famine. So back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, you can look that up if you want to or or put put your finger in that spot because there we see a lot of these same Situations going on. There's a famine, right? That Abraham experiences as he goes to the promised land. There's a famine, and he escapes to Egypt to find food. And that's where we have the whole situation of him lying about Sarah, saying that she's a, in fact my wife. And then she's actually captured by the king and and, and he and brought into his harem. And, and so there's this all this similarity of the line of Abraham of, of the life of Abraham with the line of Isaac. There again in 26, there's a famine again <coughs> in the land, not the not the former one, right? It makes a distinction. There is a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. But instead of leaving and sojourning in Egypt like I Abraham does, Isaac gets direct revelation, a word from God that says, don't go to Egypt, sojourn in this place. <clears throat> he stays. And then he stays in these, the, the land of the Philistines, and yet the odd similarity of he lies about the, the nature of his relationship with Rebekah. And he says, this lady is really, is my sister and not my wife. And it's like again, <laughs> are you? For, why we only have one like excuse to make? And evidently, this is just—it's a—it's re, a repeat of the father's sin, the father's folly upon his children. Fathers take upon yourself that what you wanted to, to take. Like I, I doubt Abraham sat down and taught Isaac. Here's how we handle our wives in foreign countries. We say they're our sisters. I don't think he did that, but I mean, there is something about. The, the way that you live your life is, is passed on to the next generation. There's a, there's a cautionary tale there that we're not going to spend much time of. But of the commentaries that I read, there's a few reasons why I think this similarity exists between the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. Because, because the writer of Genesis, Moses, is putting these things down. He's emphasizing these things. Why, why are these the things that he emphasizes? Well, the first reason is because there is a chronic weakness of those that God works through. There's a chronic weakness in those that God uses. We think Abraham, he's got this horrible story, he's messed it up. Isaac's a child of promise, he's going to be better. Oh, wait, no, he's still, there's there's chronic weakness in those that God works through. This is a story, and I've said this many times, this is a story of God's rescue of His people, not man's rescue of himself. This whole book is a story of God's rescue of His people, not people figuring out how to rescue themselves. And so we have to see this over and over again through scripture. It's not hard to find all of these places where these characters are raised up and you think, wow, this is going to be the one. And then you find out, well, they make all kinds of mistakes too. We thought Noah was the Savior, right? Because he builds the ark and he's obedient. And then they, once, once the ark lands, he has the horrible story of, of him getting inebriated and all the mess that that creates. There's, God has a pattern of working through people who don't have it all together. You know why that's good news? All there is are people who don't have it together. <laughs> if God doesn't work through people who don't have it all together, we're all out as far as God using us. I mean, I, if that's bad news for you this morning, sorry, you don't have it all figured out. You don't have it all together. But the good news is that's exactly who God works through to accomplish His purposes in the world. More on that later. But, so there's a chronic weakness, but we also see this incredible protection of God over His lineage. There, there's an offspring that's to be coming, and these men who've got the blessing of God that have these promises of these offspring that God is going to give to them, they they let their wives go to other men. There's just they open themselves up to complete catastrophe. And yet God preserves his purposes. God preserves his promise. Isaac is letting Rebecca. I mean, he now we don't in this story, she's not taken to be someone else's wife, but he's totally opened up that opportunity. He's left the door wide open for terrible things to happen to the promises of God. And yet God protects this offspring. He protects despite their shortcomings. God protects them. So we have the similarity of the chronic weakness. We have the power of God to perform his purposes. And then we see this solidification, this solidarity between Abraham and Isaac. He is the one through whom God's blessing is going to be performed through this chapter is making abundantly obvious that the true descendant of Abraham that God's blessing is going to go through is Isaac. He is the rightful offspring of Abraham for the continuation of God's blessing. It is not Ishmael. It is not all the other sons. It is Isaac. He is the one that the blessing is going to go through. In fact, we have the second word from God that comes in verses 23 through 25, right, where God shows up again and he says to him, I'm the God of your father Abraham, fear not, I am with who? I'm with you, Isaac, he's with Isaac, and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then he builds this altar at Beersheba, and they dig a well, and he worships God, Abraham's God, his God, there upon this word. So we see God's promises going to Abraham and Isaac, but there's a problem. I wondered if you noticed it as we read the text. It was, right up, it was way early on. We have a problem in the, this first word from God to Isaac. If you look with me at verse 4, he makes this promise. I will multiply your offspring and as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be, ple- shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my law. What's the problem here? Well, we have made, I've made a lot of hay. I've made a lot about the reality that Abraham is justified, how? By his faith. We went, to Rome, we went to Hebrews 11, right? Went to Romans 4, and all this talked about that Abraham is blessed by God because he believes in God's promises and therefore he is justified. It's, it's the argument that Paul makes that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, right? That's right out of the text of Genesis. He believed God... And God counted it to him as righteousness. That's his justification, his right setting, his deserving of the blessing, if you could call it deserving, of God's grace. You can't deserve it. But God's grace comes upon him through his faith in God. And yet here, God says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws, that that terminology if you read on your Bible into the book of Deuteronomy, that's often the way it's kind of referred to, the keeping of the Mosaic Law. It's talked about my covenants, my, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws, this this, this uh, way of speaking about God's demands. But if our emphasis is that Abraham is blessed by God because of his faith, what's going on here in this text? Does Abraham believe God and receive his blessing or is Abraham faithful, obedient, obedient, to receive and receives God's blessing. And the reality is, the Bible puts both of these things forward and doesn't see a contradiction in them. Spoiler alert the Bible doesn't find a contradiction in those realities. Faith in Him and obedience to Him, they look exactly the same. Faith in Christ produces obedience in Him, such that the book of James, right, comes out and it says, Listen, you prove to me your faith by doing nothing, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And he he doesn't see a conflict between believing God and then obeying what he tells him to do. And so when the Bible talks about and when this is talking about the blessing of Abraham, because he obeyed his voice, kept his charges, commandments, his statutes, and his laws, we know looking at the life of Abraham, his flawless obedience is not necessarily there but his faithfulness produced in him a life characterized by obedience. That when God said, do this, Abraham obeyed. And we see in Isaac, God says, stay in the land, and he stays. So there is this reality that faith in God and and obedience to him, they, they, they run together. They run together. Our culture today would like to divide belief from actions, such that I would say, I believe in God, but my life shows no evidence whatsoever that I have any of his moral code, that I have any of his uh, direction in my life, that I care anything about what he says really on who I should love, love thy neighbor as thyself. We read this morning in Romans there 13 that the, the idea that I should love my neighbor as much as I love myself, that really doesn't play a role in my life, but I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, sure, I'm great with Jesus, but my beliefs don't have to match what I do. The Bible doesn't recognize that. That's foreign land. That's, that, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't compute. That love for God and faith in Him is obedience to Him. Perfectly? No. We will not be flawless until we are glorified at that final great day when Christ returns. We will be free from sin. Or if He delays when we die and go to heaven, we will be free from our sinfulness. We will not be totally free from our sinfulness. But... You you cannot say you believe in Jesus and yet disregard all that he commands you to do. If Jesus has no real impact on the way you think, the way that you live, the way that you relate to others, then you don't really believe in him because you don't really take his words seriously. They go together, faith in him and obedience to him. Not perfectly, but sincerely and repentantly when you fail. So Isaac, despite his deception with Rebekah and his favoritism of Esau, he lives an obedient life. He's of faith also, an obedient life of faith. (laughs) An obedient life of faith. He submits to his father's plan of the binding. He prays for Rebekah's conception last chapter. Instead of taking on a concubine, he prays for Rebekah. He sojourns in the land as God commanded him to. He builds an altar, and he remembers the Lord and all of his successes. So we see this passing on of the blessing, we see the reality that faith in God looks like obedience to God, not perfectly necessarily, but faith in God produces obedience to God. But however, as we're going to take another chunk of this text here, the blessing of God does not guarantee your popularity with the world. The blessing of God does not guarantee, and I have a typo and Tony just copied and pasted that, the blessing of God does not guarantee you popu- uh, I guess guarantee you I guess there we go guarantee you popularity with the world I, that could be you or your but the blessing of God does not guarantee your popularity or does not guarantee you popularity with the world and what we see in the life of Isaac is a lot of struggle and strife he's got the blessing of God and they even recognize you're blessed by God but get away from us <laughs> and they and they fill they fill his wells full of dirt and, they, and they, they they try to they drive him away. Yeah, it's clear that it's clear that God is with you, but I don't want nothing to do with you. They I, I, they're doing their own thing. They don't want anything to do with Isaac. The people living around Isaac don't like him or his blessing. They drive him away. And this is why it is foolish for the people of God to get caught up in the cares and the concerns of this world. If you plan to trust Jesus and to serve Him and to live a life of obedient faith, do not think that the world will line up to celebrate you. They may tolerate some of the social impulses that you have, love for others, care for the poor and the downcast, but that's about it. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right, we preached on that Oh, I don't know a long time ago. Matthew 5:11 says, "Blessed are you when others revile you and, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account." Who is that? That is the world living in response to those who would follow Jesus. We see it in Isaac, we see it all throughout Scripture. We see it in the early church that love for Jesus will not produce for you popularity with this world. Thus we cannot bank. Our following of Jesus on how popular it is with those around us. First John 3:13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Why? Because we are serving different masters. If you seek to honor God with your sexuality, you will not be celebrated by the culture. If you promote Things like marriage between a man and a woman, you will not be celebrated by your culture. If you celebrate gender realities, you will not be celebrated by your culture. If you, if you celebrate and honor truth as God has made us a Imago day in his image, you will not be honored in this culture. If you say uh, a sexual relationship between a man and a woman is to happen only in the context of marriage, you'll not be celebrated by your culture. But this is how we honor God. If you seek to honor God with your financial choices, you'll not be celebrated by the culture. If you seek to honor God by loving those who cannot pay you back, the world will not celebrate you. If you seek to honor God by prioritizing his word, prayer, and fellowship with other believers, the world will not celebrate you. Why are you busy on that night? What do you? Why are you taking time to pray? Why are you quoting scripture? Why are you? Why are you here on a Sunday morning? Don't you know there's coffee in a newspaper and maybe London football? Is that done? Can that be done? I don't know. Maybe London football to watch? I'm not sure. Does anyone know? Is there London football today? There is. Okay, so I didn't even know. Why are you here? Your 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 culture will not celebrate you, but if you love him and trust him, you will seek to serve him regardless of the cost so three points here's one really big idea though at the as we get through the life of Isaac what do we notice <laughs> in this one chapter in the life of Isaac he's such just an ordinary dude and one of the comments that I, I've heard about Isaac is he's kind of just a he's just filler <laughs> like he, Abraham's amazing and awesome like he's a, he's a, the Founder, you know, he's the father of our faith. He believes these promises. He leaves uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. He does, I mean, has all these incredible experiences of the the covenants coming to him and all this amazing stuff coming. And then we get to, to, to Isaac's children. Jacob becomes Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel come from Jacob and Joseph. These incredible stories we're going to get to. And Isaac, he's just, I don't know, he's just kind of stuck in there. We got to have somebody to go from Abraham to his to his next kids. In fact, uh, James Montgomery Boyce says this in his commentary. He says Isaac was the ordinary son of a great father, and the ordinary father of a great son. I mean, that's that's how he characterizes Isaac. And you're just like, wow, um, that that stings. <laughs> he, he's the ordinary son of a great dad and an ordinary father of a great son. What's going on here? Because and that is, that is the truth. I mean, that's why I'm saying this is one chapter we get on the adult life of Isaac. The next chapter, he's blind can't even tell the difference, difference between Jacob and Esau. He he's becomes, he's blind and can't find anything. He doesn't know what's going on. This is the only chapter that we have. Yet, God is not ashamed of Isaac. In fact, you get through your Bible, you'll hear God referred to. He'll name himself as I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So while he may not be impressive to us from a natural w- sense, God is not embarrassed of Isaac. God is not ashamed of Isaac. He names Himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What little is reco- of what little is recorded for us of Isaac, a lot of it's disappointing and unimpressive. And these aren't the stories that, as you read your uh, kids' Bible, like there aren't a bunch of them in the life of Isaac. You know that that there's not they're not in there. So as unimpressive as it is, Hebrews eleven twenty commends Isaac. And it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He is listed in the hall of faith or the chapter of faith that they talk about. What do we gather from this? Big idea that I'd like for us to get out of this section is that God's love for his people, God's love for you even, is not based on your greatness, but on his greatness and his love for you, his love toward you in Christ Jesus. We do not rest on whether we are an impressive figure in the scope of world history. Thankfully, we do not rest there. The question is, who are we before our Father in heaven? Who are we before this great God? Does he care? It's not our greatness, but it, but, but it is our place before him. We do not rest on God's love being for us because of our greatness, but on his greatness and his love toward us in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just Christ doesn't die for the great. He dies for sinners. He dies for the needy. He dies for those who need the help, not those who have elevated themselves in greatness that they might impress God and he might reach out and rescue them. He, he, that is not the way God works. As unimpressive as Isaac may be in this scope of all these impressive figures, it is not greatness, Isaac's greatness, that matters to God. It is God's love for him that, it, that produces the life of Isaac. He is banked not in his greatness, but in God's mercy and grace towards him. Our calling is not to be great. Our calling is to be faithful with where God has put us. Our calling is not to be great, but to be faithful. And this is great news because in our fallen condition, we convince ourselves that our only value, our value is only equal to our greatness in whatever metric we put it in. Our value is only as high as whatever metric of, of value that we think we designate as important. We're only valuable if we're really good at our jobs, maybe. Maybe we, we make a lot of money. Maybe we're our bank we we provide for our family, we do a good job, we work hard, and so therefore my value is based upon my greatness. Now and I, I make more money maybe than the people around me. So my value is found there. Or maybe my value is found, I'm a really good spouse. Like, I'm kind of messing up a lot of things, but my wife or my husband, you know, they're really well taken care of, they're happy, we love each other, whatever. Maybe as a parent, I'm only successful or valuable as great as I am at raising kids. And if I can get kids that are just killing it in all these areas, then I must be really valuable because look at my greatness at what I've produced coming up behind me. Maybe we're, we only we think of ourselves as valuable if we are great in the eyes of our community. Do you have a high status in our thriving metropolis? You know, do you have high status and therefore that makes you really valuable? Or as kids, we begin to think we're valuable maybe if we are good at academics. I I get good grades and and my, my school has impressed me and they put me on a dean's list and therefore because I do great things in comparison to my other classmates, I now have value. Or maybe it's in sports. If, I, if I'm a starter or if I, if I, I, I break records or on, the whatever, on whatever sport I'm, I'm pursuing, if I have greatness there, then I have value. And this is what the world system tells us, right? This is coming at us from every angle. If I'm popular in my school, maybe if I make homecoming candidate or maybe even queen or king, or, and no offense to those of you who maybe we're homecoming kings and queens, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> but, but is that where our value and our worth is found? No. You are you are you do not have to crush yourself trying to be the dad or mom of this century. Be a faithful parent. What makes a great church? What makes a great church people? Like you know, so here we are, we're all together. You know, what how do you achieve is your goal to be great here like the guy who's standing up front, you know, talking for minute after minute, minute, half hour after half hour, you know, on and on. Being up front, leading a great Sunday school, doing some big important task is, is what gives you value, your greatness, or is it, I would much rather serve in a church where everyone focuses on their faithfulness where they are than those who are feel, trying to work for some level of greatness within a, within a culture or a community. Faithfulness where you are is what God is looking for. You don't have to be Instagram mom or influencer dad. Be faithful. You don't have to be impressive with your church success. Just be faithful with what you've been given. You don't have to be donor number one with a plaque on the wall. Be faithful. Our calling is not to be great, but our calling is to be faithful. Christ has rescued his people "...from their sinfulness, such that in the eyes of the Father, when He looks at His people, He sees those who are forgiven, washed clean, their sins, as we read in Psalm 103, as far as the East is from the West, He's removed their sins from them, such that we no longer have anything to prove before Him. Your life is not the metric of proving to God your value to Him. Your value to Him comes through the work of Jesus Christ." And if you're here this morning, the rest, the joy, the, the easy burden that Jesus gives out is that you're no longer working to impress him. You're no longer working to make him think more of you. You're resting and your affirmation and your love, his love for you in Christ alone. And that is the liberating joy of the gospel such that we can repent. Father, forgive me for the thousands of ways, Right? We could pray like this. Forgive me for the thousands of ways that I pursue value and greatness in the things of this world. And don't settle and don't rest in my place with you through Jesus Christ as my primary place of value. Isaac was not great. He was faithful. Our calling is not to be great. It is to be faithful in the areas that God has put in front of us. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would give us eyes to see the the liberating news that it is that you are not calling us to greatness. You're calling us to faithfulness. Father, I thank you that you are the God who works your purposes despite our shortcomings. You are the God who is working perfectly all that you plan to accomplish. And God, I, I pray that for every heart in this place this morning that is worn out, that is um riddled with shortcoming or insecurity or is riddled with failure or anger or, or whatever it, it, it produces in their hearts, God, over trying to earn love, earn acceptance, earn recognition, earn value, that, Father, we would see the work of Christ for what it is, that you show your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That your love for us is not based upon our performance for you, but on Christ's work for us. That by his work alone and by your grace, we might be gladly welcomed into your family. God, may that be our hope and our peace, our rest and our comfort, and our provoker to live for you Every day from here on out, God, may our lives be yours as we walk out in obedient faith, in joy for all that you have done for us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.